This is going to be, in a sense, Happy Thanksgiving. Let's go to the book of Lamentations together. So here's the background. Here's the why into that. Here's what's kind of been stirring, especially during the Thanksgiving season um, for me the last couple of years. Um, So about three years ago, um, my family, we got together the day after Thanksgiving. Uh, We go to Noelle's family's house on Thanksgiving, and we uh, go to my side of the family on the day after, so we don't have to cook for two days. It's kind of nice. Or clean. Noelle enjoys that. Um, but three years ago, we got together on my side of the family for Thanksgiving, and my littlest sister, Anna, uh, she went to a Thanksgiving dinner the day before. And it was a unique Thanksgiving dinner in that it was at a restaurant called Cafe Gratitude. Some of you may be familiar with it. It's a restaurant in the Crossroads District, downtown Kansas City. And what they were doing that Thanksgiving, and I'm not sure if they still do it now, but they were inviting anybody who wanted to come. They're inviting the public, however much space they had, in for this Thanksgiving meal. And I don't know if you know, I don't know much about Cafe Gratitude. I guess it's a vegan restaurant, so I'm not necessarily sure how they do a Thanksgiving meal with turkey and all that. But my sister, she was kind of curious about it. She was um, in school at the time to be a, uh, a dietitian uh, and do nutrition. So she went that that afternoon and um, she told me about the experience and it kind of got me thinking. So what they did was they gathered everyone around. They had everybody sit down where all the tables, there's enough room for everyone. And then right before they're about to eat the meal, um, the owners of the restaurant had everyone stand up, hold hands with one another, and then go around the room and publicly tell everyone something that they were thankful for, stand up and, and say what they were thankful for. So after my little sister, after she was telling me about this, her story, to be honest with you, it kind of, it kind of bothered me a little bit. It kind of made me wrestle with a couple things. It didn't bother me that a whole bunch of random people with various backgrounds and belief systems got together to give thanks for something. What this experience, what her experience really made me question in my own heart is how am I, how are we, as those God, as those God who's, who God has redeemed, how are we, as, though, as those who God has rescued and redeemed from sins, how are we, as those who are proclaimers of God's kingdom, as those who are co-heirs with Christ, how are we, who God has opened blinded eyes to, how is our view different from the rest of the world in the way we celebrate and view Thanksgiving. What distinguishes us from the world? When it comes down to it, fundamentally, what is our doctrine of Thanksgiving? And now I don't want to give you the wrong impression. Um, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. If you did this on Thanksgiving, like our family did this too, I want to say stop doing that. Stop giving thanks for those, for those things. You know, I'm very glad that a bunch of random people could get together and give thanks for common graces that God gives. You know, God's word says that God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, that God causes the sun to, to rise and set on the just and the unjust. So I'm glad that a bunch of people can get together and give thanks for, for things, right? Even though they may not know it's from God. If you guys watched the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade this year or football, there was this big thing they were doing, hashtag, you know, the, the Twitter, hashtag, thankful for, 
And people could tweet in these things that they're thankful for. It's things like, you know, jobs and houses and a roof over my head and health and family and relationships. So, yeah, it's good that people can get together and give thanks for these things. But if a bunch of people who are blinded to the truth of the gospel can gather to share a meal with one another, can gather to give thanks for these good things in their lives and share these, quote-unquote, these positive thoughts with one another, again, what distinguishes our thanksgiving? It kind of made me think of the old, um, the old Disney movie. It's, I don't know when it is, like 1950s or 60s maybe. Um, it's the movie Pollyanna. It's one of the first Disney movies I saw a long time ago. And, you know, Pollyanna, she's like this chipper 9, 10, 11-year-old girl. And she's always like, there's something to be happy about. There's something to be thankful for, right? Let's think good thoughts. It's like, is that what distinguishes our thanksgiving? Where does our hope and joy stem from? What's our motivation for giving thanks? What is our doctrine of thanksgiving? How does the gospel shape and form the way we give thanks? And here's where Lamentations, a book about suffering, a book about death, a book about mourning, and obviously a book about lament, given the name, right? It serves to expose our hearts in regards to the places we find hope and our foundation for thanksgiving. So if you would, please, if you'd turn with me to Lamentations chapter 3. It's right after the book of Jeremiah, which you'll probably notice first. So Lamentations chapter 3. And before we read there together, um, I'd like to pray. So if you would, please pray with me. Lord God, we come before you this morning. God, we come before you needed again over and over to be reminded of the truth of the good news, the truth of the gospel. Holy Spirit, would you come now and open up our eyes again, remind us of the good news, remind us of your mercies. Holy Spirit, would you come now and feed us with your word? You promised you would. Holy Spirit, you said you would come and be our helper, that you would lead us and point us to the truth. Would you please do that now for us? Please do what we cannot do ourselves. Open up our eyes to the greatness, to the excellencies of the gospel. Please do that for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So Lamentations, chapter 3. Let's start in verse 13. The author says this. He starts out saying, He, speaking of God, he says, He drove into my kidneys the arrow of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all the peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. 
My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Well, to give some context, to give some background to what's going on here, Obviously, we're jumping into the middle of a five-chapter book, Lamentations. So what's going on here, just to give some context and some background, is we see the author here of Lamentations, who most biblical scholars, they believe him to be the prophet Jeremiah. And what he's doing, he's writing very graphically about the siege and about the destruction of Jerusalem. And from the author's account, the situation it's horrible. It's really beyond horrible. It's really unbearable. I mean, the atrocities that he goes on to say, and we'll look at a few of them, are really almost unimaginable. The way the author describes this account, it's probably worse than almost anything we could think. It's almost like a, like a nightmarish, worse than a nightmarish scenario. So what had happened is for years and years, Jeremiah, the prophet called by God, had warned the kings of Judah to return to the Lord, to put away their idols, to turn from their unfaithfulness. But their hearts were hard. So after warning, after warning, after warning, after warning, God gives them over, the people of Judah, God gives them over to their destruction. And we can see from accounts from 2 Kings 24 and 25, if you want to read more about the background of this later on, you can go to 2 Kings 24 and 25. In the early 500s BC, the Babylonians, they laid siege on Jerusalem. They completely destroy the city. They plunder everything. They go into the temple and they steal all the gold and the valuable items. They burn the temple. They burn all the houses they, they, they burn the fortification, the wall around Jerusalem, and everything is left smoke and rubble. You really get the picture. It's like, you know, those old World War, World War II documentaries that you watch of Germany being bombed, and there's just like the smoke and rubble. That's kind of the sense of what you get. This is what Jeremiah was living in when he wrote this. As for the people who live there, it was a horrible situation. So the kings and the princes of Judah, what happened was the Babylonians, they were really a barbaric people. So what they did um, with, the, with the princes, with the king's sons, is they lined them up in front of the king, slashed them down right in front of the king's face. And then what they did with the king, the king of Judah, is they gouged out his eyes and they took him off to Babylon. It was kind of their way of saying, hey, you know what, king? We're going to let you live. But the last thing we want you to see, the last thing we want you to remember with your eyes is seeing your sons being slashed down in front of your face. With the rest of the people um, in Jerusalem, surrounding countryside, they led them off into Babylon as well. And then all that was left in the city were just the poorest of the poor to tend to the vineyards, to the animals, 
um, to do the farming, um, to take care of the crops. So the author of Lamentations, he's in the midst of this mourning, of this destruction, and this weeping. He's seen it all. And here's how he graphically describes some of what he's seen. We're not going to look at all this, but if you read the, the, the context, the rest of Lamentations, he says some things like this. In Lamentations 2.12, he says, Children begged for food from their mothers. Lamentations 2.21 says, Men and women were cut down by the sword. The city is piled with rubble. And then Jeremiah goes on to say this in Lamentations 4.10, which this is almost inimaginable to think about. He says things were so bad, things were so desperate that Lamentations 4.10 says, quote, the hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food in the destruction. Friends, think about this. It's gross, isn't it? It's almost sickening, isn't it? Women were so desperate, the situation was so dire, that these people, they were willing to boil their own children, their own flesh and blood, and make them their food. It's pretty gross, isn't it? So you can understand the lament, right? You can understand the crying out of Jeremiah. In fact, the original name of the book in Hebrew of Lamentations, it's not Lamentations. The original name in Hebrew when it was written was Ekah, which means alas or how. Just this, this groaning. You get a sense of this weeping and this lamenting over this horrendous situation. Then later on, the, the, the translators had to go back and they, they substituted Akka with lamentations because it gave a more clear and evocative meaning of what was going on. So back to Lamentations 3. How do we see the author of Lamentations respond to what he's seeing? How does he respond to the death and the destruction and the despair that he's surrounded by and that he's even experiencing himself, that he's in the middle of, him, of himself. What's going on in his mind at that time? Where's his heart at? Where's his gaze at that time? The first thing we see the author turned to is he recognizes the sovereignty of God in this situation. Even looking back at the beginning of this chapter, which we're going to do, the author is very much aware of the sovereignty of God, that God is in control, that this is God's doing, and that God ordained these events. And this can be kind of a, a, a tricky thing. This can be kind of a hard thing for us to hear sometimes, right? You know, it can get a little uncomfortable for us to hear these things. It can make us feel a little uneasy because so often the way we tend to view any form of suffering or pain that we experience as something, you know, God could never ordain that. You know, it's kind of like we have these filters and even the culture, we have these, these cultural filters and these things that take in and, and, that, and that we judge what a blessing is and what God's favor is on our lives, right? We do it all the time. You know, just um, last Sunday, I was having breakfast with Ariel. We're at McDonald's. We have these daddy, these daddy, these dad-daughter, Ariel would be embarrassed if I said that, these, these dad-daughter dates. And um, so every Sunday that I'm not doing something early before church, 
Um, which is usually about five or six, once every five or six Sundays. I go on a dad-daughter date with uh, one of our girls and I go wherever they want to have breakfast. And Ariel chose a McDonald's smoothie and a sausage McMuffin that morning. And um, so we're sitting in McDonald's and the TV, you know, all the, man, I haven't been in a McDonald's for a long time. And like, they're nice inside now. It's like, whoa, what happened to these McDonald's? This is a nice one across the street from the mall. And there's like TVs in there now. And um, I never watched TV Sunday morning. So I, was, I, was, I saw it, glanced over, and there's a famous TV preacher on. And um, I could see the, you know, the subtitles that have the, the words going on. And he was saying things. Um, when I glanced over, he's saying things like, it's God's destiny for us to be healthy. It's God's destiny for you to have these things. It's God's destiny for you to have to be happy. This is God's destiny for you. And you know what, you guys? I was convicted at that time because if we're honest with ourselves, if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of times, you know, theologically, we know the prosperity gospel. We know it contradicts the gospel. We know it's not right. But functionally, what do we believe about blessing? What do we believe about the sovereignty of God? What do we believe about God's favor? It's easy in those moments to, to even give in to the prosperity gospel, to give in to these things. Well, what is God? Is, is God not good? Is, is God's favor not on me in these times? We've all been there. We've all done that, right? When something works according to our expectations, when something works according to how we think things should turn out, it's easy for us in those moments to proclaim, I'm thankful. I'm blessed. God is blessing me right now. I have the new baby. I have a, a house. I've paid off my mortgage. I got the promotion. Things are good. I'm blessed right now. But when circumstances don't turn out the way we expect, when something doesn't fit into our filter of what blessing in God's favor may be, our eyes can quickly lose sight of God's sovereignty, of God working in the situation. But the author of Lamentations, he's convinced of something different. He's convinced of God's sovereignty. He does not lose sight of what God is doing in this situation. He's not afraid to acknowledge God's purposes, even in suffering and loss. So check out the beginning of the chapter. So in your Bibles, Lamentations 3.1, he starts out, and I'm going to go through some of these real quick of how the author, what he does, how he sees God working in this situation. First, he says in verse 1, I'm a man who has seen affliction under the rod of his, of his wrath. And then he goes on to say from some very hard things for us to hear, about what God is bringing him through. He goes on to say this, verse 2. He says, He has driven and brought me into darkness. Verse 3, He turns his hand again and again the whole day long. Verse 4, He has made my flesh waste away. He has broken my bones. Verse 5, He has besieged me. He has enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. Verse 6, He has made me dwell in darkness. Verse 7, He has walled me in. He has made my chains heavy. Verse 8, He shuts out my prayer. Verse 9, He has blocked my ways. He has made my paths crooked. Verse 10, He is a bear. 
He is a lion lying in wait for me. Verse 11, he tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. Verse 12, he bent his bow and made me the target for his arrow. Verse 13, he drove into my kidney kidneys his arrows. Verse 15, he has filled me with bitterness and wormwood. Verse 16, he has made my teeth grind on gravel and cower in ashes. Jeremiah, this is your best life right now. Right? Yikes! These are some hard things for us to hear, aren't they? Happy Thanksgiving to Jeremiah right now, right? All right, Jeremiah, it's your turn. Stand up at the dinner table and tell everybody what you're thankful for. It's your turn, Jeremiah. He's in pain, he's suffering. We see the author proclaim the sovereignty of God in this situation. And then he looks around and you get a sense of what he's feeling. He says, God, it feels like you took a whole bunch of arrows and you're driving them into my kidneys. God, it seems like you're this bear like this, you're lying, just tearing me to pieces. God, you continue to plunder me. This hurts. This is painful. God, I'm growing bitter and this is your doing. In verse 17 and 18, the author, Jeremiah, he goes on to say that his soul is at loss of peace. He even goes so far to say he's forgotten what happiness is. He says his endurance has perished and so has his hope from the Lord. Man, what a statement to make. My endurance has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. What a place to be in, right? He doesn't have anything left. He's helpless, and he's hopeless. Verse 20 goes on to say he's humbled. His soul can't stop thinking about these things. He's brought down low. He has nowhere to turn. He has nowhere to go. He has nothing to be thankful or hopeful about. And then we get to verse 21. And there's a one word that changes it all. Verse 21 starts with one word. And this one word changes everything. The author starts with the word, but. He says, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. And now this is extremely significant. So I want you to hear this, please. Because remember, in the last two verses that we just read, the author can only remember his afflictions and the seeming curse that's been laid on him. So what happens? What changes? Where's his hope coming from? You know, does he just muster himself up to think positively at that time? You know, did he read some self-help book or a book on psychology and the power of positive thinking? Does he sit down and say to himself, well, you know what? I just need to think of all the good things. You know what? It's good that these moms were boiling their babies because at least they had food. You know, did he do that? Did he watch Pollyanna? Did he turn on the TV pastor and say, yeah, you know what? This is God's destiny for me. I just need to be happy. He doesn't do that, does he? In fact, he can't even go there. He can't muster up anything on his own strength. 
Remember, he just got done saying he has nothing. He just got done saying he's forgotten what happiness is. He just got done saying that he continually remembers his sufferings and afflictions. But then something stirs in him. And the light and the power of God's truth, it grabs hold of this man and it shines into his darkness and his hopelessness. It's really something miraculous that happens at this time. His mind is turned. His gaze shifts and he's stirred to recount truth. And he begins to preach the gospel to himself. In the midst of his helplessness and his despair and his hopelessness, when he has seemingly nothing to be thankful for, the power of God's truth takes hold. And the author proclaims in verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord, the steadfast love of Yahweh, the covenant God, my covenant God, his, stad- his steadfast love never ceases. The literal Hebrew translation here reads, because of the steadfast love of the Lord, we are not cut off. You know, the author knows something here. Jeremiah is convinced of something here. Jeremiah knows and recalls that he has a bigger problem than that of the death and destruction of the people and his city. He knows that he has a bigger problem than what he's experiencing around him and the what's causing him to despair. And you know what that problem is? He recalls his sin in view of a holy and righteous God. He remembers that God is just and holy. And because of his sin, because of Jeremiah's sin, because of Jeremiah's unfaithfulness, he recounts that he should be completely cut off and experience eternal separation from God and everlasting destruction. But oh, the mercy of God. Oh, the steadfast covenant-keeping love of Yahweh, of God. Jeremiah holds fast to those truths and he knows that his greatest problem is solved. That his greatest problem of sin and unfaithfulness is solved. You know, by definition, God's mercy toward us is God not giving us what we deserve. By definition, that's what mercy is. God does not give us what we deserve. And Jeremiah knows and understands what his sin deserves. And he knows how God's steadfast and covenant-keeping love has covered his sin. And that's why he goes on to say, God's mercies, they never come to an end. They are new every morning. God's mercies are new every morning. God's mercies are inexhaustible. They are fresh. His mercy is not something that's going to grow stale or run out over time. God's mercies are new every morning. An excellent commentary that I read put it like this, put God's mercies in light of what we read just like this. He says this, he says, here are mercies 
in the plural number, denoting the abundance and variety of those mercies. God is an inexhaustible fountain of mercy, the father of mercies. We all owe it to the sparing mercy of God that we are not consumed. Others have been consumed round about us, and we ourselves have been in the consuming, and yet we are not consumed. We are out of the grave. We are out of hell. Had we been dealt with according to our sins, we should have been consumed long ago. But we have been dealt with according to God's mercies, and we are bound to acknowledge it to his praise. The author of Lamentations, he goes on to say in verse 24, he says this. He says, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will have hope in him. He says, what else do I need? The thing that I needed most, the removal of my sin and my shame and my rebellion, it's been taken care of. The everlasting God, he's made a covenant with me. He is my portion. That's where I place my hope. That's where I fix my eyes. This is what I recall. This is what I put before me. You know, I think if Jeremiah were to walk in to Cafe Gratitude, if he were to have a seat with everyone there, I think this man, when it was his his turn to stand up, as he would be holding hands there around the table, Thanksgiving table, I think he might say something like this. I think he may say, you know what? Everything has been taken from me. I don't have anything left. I've seen and experienced innumerable atrocities. I've seen mothers who were once compassionate and nurturing and loving. I've seen them grow so desperate that they've boiled their own children for their food. You know what? In and of myself, I don't have anything to be thankful for. In fact, I don't have any hope at all in what I can feel and what I can see. I'm in pain. My heart's growing bitter. I'm losing strength. But you know what? I deserve worse. Because of my unfaithfulness towards a righteous and pure God, in view of God's justice and hatred towards anything that opposes him, because of my rebellion, my rebellion, my sin deserves not just a little taste of God's discipline, my sin deserves the full measure of God's consuming wrath. I deserve eternal destruction, but great is God's mercy. I think he would go on to say, and he would stand up and might even proclaim loudly, I'm thankful for God's steadfast love. God's mercies are infinite. Every day I wake up and I see all these things. I look around me and I don't know what to do, but I wake up and I see a new facet of God's mercy. Even when all else is taken, I can say, the Lord, Yahweh, this God who's made a covenant with me, he's my portion. And so I have hope. And so I can give thanks. Friends, how much more can we say the same thing this morning?
where the author of Lamentations, where Jeremiah only knew a foretaste of the gospel, where he only knew a foretaste of Emmanuel, these songs that we're singing of, of Emmanuel, of God with us, of what we're getting ready to celebrate this Advent season, of God condescending in flesh to die on a cross and become the punishment we deserve, where the author only by faith, where he was only able to see one aspect of God's covenant-keeping love, Friends, we get to see the full measure of God's steadfast love through Jesus' death and resurrection. May that stir us up. May those gospel truths grow us up in our faith. You know, I look at what the author of Lamentations went through and what he was stirred to proclaim. You know, thinking about this the last couple weeks as I'm preparing And then I look at my own life and what I see in me, what I really see in me is a lot of my, my youngest daughter, Camille. Let me explain that. So Camille, she's six years old and she has a a tendency that whenever anything doesn't go her way, whenever anything doesn't go according, her sisters are laughing. (laughs) You girls do it too. We all do it. Whenever anything doesn't go her way, whenever anything doesn't go according to her expectations, she doesn't have a filter. There's immediate whining and complaining, right? The tears flow. She can't have that extra piece of candy. You know, this morning, honestly, it was, how come Ariel gets to ride in the car with me? I wanted to ride with church to church with daddy alone in his car. And it was seriously, I look in the back seat and she's back pouting, you know, but that filter isn't there. It's anything that doesn't go according to her expectations, doesn't go according how she has planned. There's immediate grumbling, immediate complaining. You know what? Noelle and I can sit there and we can try to logically tell all the reasons why, no, this is what's best for you. This is why we're doing it. Here's the reasons why. And it doesn't matter. There will be ensuing tears and grumbling and complaining. But friends, I'm convicted of the same things in my own heart, in my own attitude. I don't need to experience much pain like Jeremiah to lose sight of God's steadfast love. You know, it can be an email. It can be a change of plans. It can be a disobedient kid or a sick kid or a lack of sleep. It can be a relational issue. And all of a sudden, where's my gaze? My gaze, where's my attitude? Where's my heart in view of the gospel? My heart is so prone. Our hearts are so prone to lose sight of the new mercies and what God has called me to, what God has called us together. Even this morning, you know, I had my alarm set for 7 o'clock. I was going to get up and go over the sermon again this morning. And inevitably, I didn't know Noelle, she's getting up way earlier. And immediately my heart starts grumbling. She got up and as soon as Noelle is up, it's like the whole house is alive and she's getting stuff ready for later on. And I'm like, man, I'm going to be tired and all this stuff. And I'm like, here I am. I need to preach about this, right? And where's my heart? Look at the own, my own immaturity in my heart, right? 
And then we see examples of Hebrews 10.34. We see examples of believers in Hebrews 10.34 where it says these believers, these people, they're being persecuted. And, and listen to this. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the gospel, they joyfully, they joyfully, yes, this is great. Thank you, God. We're getting our property taken away. We're getting our houses burned. Things are going away. People are pillaging our homes. Why? Because of the gospel. For the sake of Christ. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property for the sake of Christ. So friends, together, let's continue to encourage one another with these gospel truths that we would grow up into examples of those on display, the supernatural thing that happens, the supernatural and the Holy Spirit supernaturally grabs our mind in those moments of discontent that the Holy Spirit would supernaturally come and shift our gaze, that we'd preach to ourselves these gospel truths, the miraculous hope and joy would change the way we functionally live our lives, the way we give, the way we view one another, the way we love one another, the way we walk with one another, Yo, know, we want to be a church. That's my prayer. We want to be a church that makes disciples. We want to be a church that grows in maturity. And this is what it looks like. Walking with one another, encouraging one another with these gospel truths. Because friends, it's hard, right? We all walk through these things and it's hard. Where are our hearts prone to? Discontent. Entitlement. That's where our hearts are prone to, grumbling and complaining. But oh, the mercy of God. Friends, this is our hope. Friends, this is good news. Our greatest need has been taken care of. That's good news. And that's why we gather. That's why we gather in care groups. That's what we gather to pray. Friends, our greatest need has been taken care of. Christ has come to rescue us. Christ has come to save us. Emmanuel, God with us. That's our hope. That's our salvation. I, know, I want to end with closing with this. Actually, Matthew <laughs> referenced it this morning already. This story about Horatio Spofford. I'll give a little more detail about it. He's a man. He lived in the mid-19th century he was a wealthy Chicago loyal, lawyer, <laughs> wealthy Chicago lawyer, lawyer, and he had a thriving legal practice. He had a beautiful home. He had a wife, four daughters. He had a son. He's also a devout Christian and a faithful student of the scriptures. He had friends that um, included Dwight Moody, the, the fav- famous evangelist. He had various other well-known um, Christians around him of the day. And at the very height of, of his financial and professional success, Horatio and his wife, Anna, they first suffered the tragic loss of their, their son, their young son. He died of pneumonia. Shortly thereafter, on October 8th, 1871, 
the Great Chicago Fire destroyed almost every real estate investment that he had. It's ru it ruined him financially. Further, his business interests were hit by the economic downturn of 1873. So later in 1873, later on in that year, Spofford scheduled a boat trip to Europe to give his wife, to give his family some reprieve to get away from that area for a while to recover from the tragedies. And then he also planned to, to join Pastor Moody on an evangelistic campaign in England at the time. So Spofford sent his wife and all four daughters ahead of him while he remained in Chicago because he was delayed on business concerning some zoning problems after the Great Chicago Fire. Several days later, he received notice that his family's ship, like Matthew mentioned this morning, had a collision with another ship. All four of his daughters drowned. His wife, Anna, survived and sent him the now famous telegram that read, Saved alone, what shall I do? Shortly afterwards, with a heavy heart, Spofford boarded a boat that would take him to his grieving wife, Anna, in England. And it was on this trip when the ship's captain called for Spofford and pointed to the location as they were passing by where his daughters drowned, where he penned these words that we sang this morning. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to know, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control. Let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we, God, we sit before you here this morning. God, we pray. God, we pray that this blessed assurance would control us, God. God, we pray that we would be compelled, that we would be controlled by the truth that you have regarded our helpless estate. God, that you has, have, have shed your own blood for us. God, I pray that the truth God, that our sins, not just part of our sins, but all of our sins, God, have been nailed to the cross and that we bear them no more. God, I pray that that would cause our hearts, no matter what the situation, no matter what the situation, that it would cause our hearts to cry out, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise you, God, O oh, our souls. God, that our neighbors would see it, God, that our friends would see it, that our co-workers would see it. God, that our kids would see it. 
God, that they would see a difference in who we are. God, that they would see a difference in our attitudes. God, that they would see a difference in the way that we live our lives. God, that they would see a difference in our demeanors and the way we give in our generosity, in our love, in our compassion. God, that the world would see and take note. Please, Lord God, we pray that you would do these things for us. God, for our good, for our joy, and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.